Welcome inside the war room. Ryan Ray here. As always, today's guest is Tim Grunhard. But first, but first, but first, first, if you could, go to the newsletter, sign up, be a part of the conversation. We'd love to have you there, warroommedia.com. And now let's talk about Tim Grunhard, our guest and author of the book, View from the Center, My Football Life and the Rebirth of Chiefs Kingdom. Tim played 11 seasons for the Chiefs, including seven postseasons. He was inducted in 2021 into the Chiefs Hall of Fame. He also played for Notre Dame, won a national championship there. So it's um, it's uh, was pretty cool to talk to him. Obviously, I make a joke at the beginning about me. I was a center in high school, not nearly. I wasn't any good, but uh, anyways, it's always good to chop it up with the old old linemen, even though they're exponentially more talented and, and all that stuff than me. So, anyways, here's my conversation with Tim. Run hard. Tim, welcome to the War Room. Hey, it's good to be here with you guys. Uh, thanks for having me this morning. And I've got to ask this question before we get into it. I'm sure you've been doing a lot of shows and um, podcasts or, or whatever during the book promo, but uh, I didn't I didn't say this beforehand. I didn't want to intimidate you, but I, I should probably mention that I was the, um, the team captain as a starting center for my senior year of a 4A school in Louisiana. So I hope that that's not intimidating as you being a professional center, talking to another center. Hopefully we can talk as peers. That's kind of what I'm hoping for today. You know, I knew there was something about you that I liked when I first saw you. I wasn't quite sure what it was, but obviously it's a fraternity of the center position. Uh, so obviously, you know, when we talk about the view from a center, uh, you see that view. So mm-hmm. that is, uh, that's great. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, there's something about centers, you know, the, the personality, uh, the grit, uh, just uh, being a leader. So uh, it's great to be on with you. Well, let's talk about that for just a second. Um, I was a center because I was um, not very fast, not strong enough to, or fast enough to quick enough to be tackle. Um, and so, you know, they needed someone to, to snap the ball consistently. And I, I could do that. And so that's kind of how I got to be center uh, in high school. Um, obviously you had a career much longer and much more decorated than mine. How did you become center? Well, that's a great question, and it, it, it was a process. Uh, so it, it maybe now after that explanation of how you became center, now I realize how I became center uh, because I've gotten smaller and slower than everybody else. But now, uh, yeah, so in, in high school, I played tackle. So I was recruited uh, all over the, the, the country from, from different schools to play offensive line, but I thought I'd be a guard. Uh, uh, so my freshman year at Notre Dame, uh, I played a little bit of tackle. I played some games at tackle at right tackle. And then as my career went on, uh, they moved me down to guard. And um, uh, when I got drafted in the NFL, uh, there was just certain teams that wanted me as a center and certain teams that wanted me as a guard. Uh, the Kansas City Chiefs were one of those teams that wanted me as a center. So when they drafted me, Howard Mudd, who was my offensive line coach, uh, we were in the locker room. It's a funny story. We're in the locker room and and he's spinning this football around and he walks up to me. And he says, Hey, uh, Hey, Granny. He goes, uh, welcome to Kansas city. He said, uh, you know, um, we're going to put you at center. And I said, well, okay. You, you know, I really have never played center before. He goes, yeah, yeah, we'll work with you. You know, uh, we understand that we knew that when we drafted you and he flipped the ball to me and goes, Hey, listen, we need you to go and take a couple snaps with Steve DeBerg. And I mean, this is in the locker room in minicamp, right? So Steve DeBerg is probably in his 18th year or something crazy like that by this time, and about 40 years old. And here's this 21-year-old kid from Notre Dame who's never played center, who's a rookie. And I'm sitting there with the football, and and I literally wasn't sure which one Steve DeBerg was. 
So there's one guy that I knew in the locker room, and it was Jonathan Hayes, who played tight end uh, for the Chiefs for a long time. And I knew him because his brother, Jay Hayes, was a coach of mine at Notre Dame. So kind of going through the recruiting process, not recruiting process, but the draft process. And then when I was drafted, I talked to Jonathan a couple times on the phone, just about where to stay and what to do and what I need to bring and that kind of stuff. Uh, so I went to, to uh, Jonathan and said, hey, Jonathan, they, they want me to snap the ball to this guy, Steve DeBerg. Which one is he? And he looked at me and he shook his head and he goes, oh, you rookies. You know, he had this <laughs> deep ball of a voice. And he says, the guy laying down on the ground in front of his locker right over there. So I'm like, oh, crap. So I walk over and and I said, I wasn't sure what to call him. You know, he was calling him Bergy, you know, Steve. And, and I literally, as God is my witness, said, uh, Mr. DeBerg, uh, <laughs> Howard Mudd wants me to do a couple snaps with you. Can can we Can we do that? And he looked up, he was laying on the ground, looked up and uh, looked down. He said, all right. In that kind of California boy uh, accent, he said, that's ah, all good. So he, he got up, uh, you know, his body was creaking and he was moaning, you know, after all the years he played in the NFL. And uh, the next thing I know, I did a couple snaps with him and said, oh, you're good. So literally, the, my center experience going into the NFL to play against guys like Bill Moss and Dan Salimo was two snaps in the locker room. So oh, wow. that was my center experience. Wow. But you, as you mentioned, though, so you played at, at Notre Dame um, and at what we might say the height of Notre Dame. Would you agree with that? Well, it's the last time we won a national championship. And if uh, if there's a low, probably would have been last week against Marshall. But <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so it, it was a really good period. So I was recruited. Uh, by Lou Holtz at Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jerry Faust did not recruit me at Notre Dame. I wasn't big enough. Uh, and I always wanted to go to Notre Dame. I, in the book, there's a photo of, of, a, of a Chiefs helmet, of all things, that my aunt gave me growing up at about two or three years old. And she got it in New Mexico. That's where they were from. And the Chiefs just won Super Bowl four. So there was a bunch of Chief helmets out there. She brought this helmet for me. And and I wasn't too happy with it because I didn't know anything about the Chiefs and was a Bears fan and, and a Notre Dame fan, like my whole family was. So I cried. My dad painted the Chiefs helmet Notre Dame gold. So, uh, you know, so I, I was always a Notre Dame fan, So which is crazy because the only two teams I ever played for were represented in that helmet that I got when I was two or three years old. That is funny. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, uh, I always wanted to go to Notre Dame, wasn't being recruited for Notre Dame, was kind of upset about that. When Lou Holtz came over from Minnesota, he reluctantly carried the scholarship over. I was like the last guy to get offered a scholarship from Notre Dame and the rest is history. So yeah, I played at Notre Dame under Lou Holtz uh, for the uh, four years from 86 to 89. And the last two years, we only lost one game and won a national championship. So a pretty good run. What makes Lou a special coach? You know, he, he, he's a, he's a really good X and O's guys, but, but that's not his strength. His strength is he's a psychologist. Uh, He's a motivator. Uh, he, he finds your weakness and he exploits it. Uh, he finds what makes you tick, uh, what makes you, uh, um, you know, dig deeper, uh, punch through the hard times. And for me, I was always a pleaser. Uh, you know, I grew up, uh, was the youngest of, of two boys and, and, uh, my brother was a, a phenomenal athlete, played uh, major league baseball and, Went, went on to Northwestern and played baseball there. But if, I was always trying to please my dad or please somebody. And, you know, that, that was what kind of drove me is to be a pleaser, to be accepted. And he knew that. 
So he never gave me any compliments. I mean, it was, you know, in fact, it was usually the other way around. So uh, he, he really challenged me uh, to be the best player I could be. And I, I can't thank him enough. I just saw him a couple of weeks ago and told him, I said, you know, I, he said, no, no, I want to thank you. You know, I won a national championship with your group and everything else. The coach, you gave me an opportunity. And I want to thank you so much. But it, he was a master motivator and psychologist. That's what he really did the best. It wasn't really X's and O's. It was finding the finding the way to motivate players is what he did so well. Yeah, and just talk about that maybe for folks who haven't played football. I mean, there's, there's kind of the stereotypes, the receivers, maybe the divas, the guys in the trench, a little bit more gritty. Um, you know, walk us through from your perspective, having a long career, multiple levels, um, you know, are there really personality types that kind of fit these different roles or is that more maybe a, we, we kind of like to hype it up from the outside? Well, I think your personality probably uh, in, in, in football, the football life uh, is kind of dictated to you because I, I, obviously I wanted to be a running back or a quarterback or, you know, I wanted to be a linebacker and I just did not have the body type to do that. So when they moved me to, you know, offensive line and defensive line, you kind of adapt to that position. You know, even as a young kid, you know, in fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade, you know, you learn that you need five guys to have success. You got to communicate. You got to, you got to be on the same page. You know, you got to be unselfish. You, you know, you're not going to score touchdowns. Everybody wants to score a touchdown. Everybody wants to be the hero. And very rarely are the offensive linemen the heroes of the story. Uh, you know, in fact, uh, they always have big parties uh, on the football team. They just don't tell the offensive linemen where they're at. So, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of the second class citizen, but we get our excitement, we get our motivation, we get our, our thrills off of watching other people have success. So it's kind of a personality uh, trait that is built through competition and through playing. Uh, there are always, always, there always are some offensive linemen and defensive linemen uh, that are uh, bombastic and have big personalities and, you know, and may, uh, may uh, uh, attract a little bit more attention than others, but basically the five guys are basically one and uh, you know, you win as an offensive line unit, you lose as an offensive line unit. Yeah. And I always felt, um, I'm curious if this translates for the, the higher levels, um, at least through high school, they'd put the better players on defense, defense line. So <laughs> I always, I always kind of realized where I was in the pecking order. And so you're like, okay, you got to work a little bit harder just to kind of make up the deficit between uh, at least us and you. But I do think that there is, um, from an offensive line perspective, there is kind of maybe a, I don't know, frustration is the right word, but but you you um you know the guys that the guys the way the defensive ends and stuff are built or linebackers that you're going to be is they're built they're built differently than you are or the the guards are per se or the tackles are and so it is kind of a weird dynamic of the players that you're matched up against um and, and kind of going through that process did you did you um did you ever feel like hey you know what I've got something to prove. Yeah, I mean that that that's the story uh, of my of the first part of my book is I was born hungry. I always felt like I, whether it was relationship with my father, relationship with my brother, relationship with coaches, relationship with teammates, relationship with uh, you know family, um, you know, always had something to prove. So it really fit into my personality playing the offensive line position is that, you know, uh, you don't get a lot of uh, of accolades. Uh, you know, other people. Uh, get the pat on the back and you just kind of go back to the to the huddle or you go back to the bench and grab some water and wait for the next time to go out there and put your body in front of some person that's trying to run you over to get to other people. Uh, you know, I kind of considered a bodyguard. Hey, listen, there were times when, 
you know, you have to make a decision, right? Uh, you're coming off of a, uh, a defensive tackle and a guy like Junior Sale is blitzing full speed in that A-gap. And you know when you put your body in front of him that you're going to be out of position. You're going to get run over and it's going to hurt, right? And you have to make a conscious decision that you are going to do that. And that's not a natural uh, tendency. It's not a natural feeling to inflict pain on yourself. Right. So, you know, you throw your body across and all of a sudden you get run over and you help, you know, the quarterback stay up or you get the ball off and you go back to the huddle and, and uh, you know, there's no pat on the back. There's no, hey, you know, great, uh, great job. There's no you don't get points for that. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's um, it's a unique position for unique men. I wouldn't want to do anything else. I really wouldn't. You know, obviously, when you're younger, you always want to be the quarterback or the fullback or the running back or the linebacker. But uh, in my 11 years in the NFL and four years in college and four years in high school, and believe it or not, I was an ex-head or a, uh, you know, the guy that had the tape on their helmet, couldn't carry the ball in CYO football and in peewee football. So I was an offensive lineman there. So my whole life, you know, it's funny. I have never in, let's see, four years of of, of little league football, four years of high school, four years of college, 11 years in the NFL, I've never scored a touchdown. So, yeah, there you go. Yeah, Uh, 20 some years of playing football and have never had the opportunity to spike a football or have you raise your hands and everybody runs up and hugs you for scoring a touchdown. That just wasn't part of the deal. And uh, I had to accept that. So playing at Notre Dame, uh, playing Miami, the team that you guys played during that run, you're playing at a super high level. Right. Um, And so going to the NFL, um, perhaps the jump wouldn't be the same as someone going to a, a smaller university to the NFL. But still, you're playing now against all NFL players, whereas Notre Dame, you're not playing all NFL players. Um, what was that like? You, you talked about the kind of the girl back thing a minute ago, but, but generally through training camp, through your first year, how did you battle with the all of, wow, these are the names I've heard of for years versus, okay, I've got a job to do and i got to be part of the team and I've got to kind of be a professional here. Yeah, you know, that's a delicate balance. Um, you know, obviously, early in my career, we played against Chicago Bears. I grew up a huge Chicago Bear fan. I, I read Mike Singletary's book. Uh, I had, uh, you know, Dan Hampton's poster on my wall growing up, uh, you know, 85 Bears. I was in uh, high school and I mean, that was, uh, you know, that was the greatest team that, that I could ever ima- uh, uh, imagine or uh, the greatest team I've ever seen play, especially on the defensive side. So, I mean, those guys were my idols. Uh, so playing against those guys, I mean, that certainly was something you had to shut off a certain part of your brain and just go about your business. And, and yeah, so um you know, I always thought, and I tell kids this all the time, I think the jump between, you know, high school and college to me was a lot harder than the jump between college and the NFL. Um, you know, uh, you're a 17, 18-year-old kid, and the guys that you're going against are 21, 22-year-old men. Uh, I mean, there's just a lot of physical difference and a lot of mental difference and everything else. So when you get drafted in the NFL, and you're basically a man, and you're going against other guys, and you're a younger guy, so you sometimes have the advantage physically, maybe not mentally, but physically because you're not as beat up as some of the guys you played against. So uh, yeah, uh, I thought it was a, uh, a, a, not an easy transition from Notre Dame to, to the NFL, uh, but it was a transition that I could handle a transition that I felt comfortable with. Although I will tell you this, Marty Schottenheimer did a really good job with me. You remember now Mike Webster was the guy that was playing in front of me, you know, and Mike was at the end of his career. He didn't want to play anymore. He told me when I walked in, he said, listen, they drafted you to replace me and I'm here to get you ready. So I don't have to play anymore. 
you know, I'm tired. I, I came here. He, he came here. Remember now he came to Kansas city to be a coach. And then they realized that he was as good, if not better than anybody they had. And they said, Hey, you want to play? And he's like, sure. I'll play. Cause that's the way Mike was. So when I got there, uh, you know, uh, Mike Webster was, you know, kind of the guy that kind of mentored me and gave me, uh, uh, the insides and outsides of, of playing the position. And, um, you know, I didn't really particularly have a lot of competition and I was going to play, but Marty did a really good job mentally for me. Physically, I was ready to go, but mentally, maybe I wasn't. And, you know, the first game we played against the Minnesota Vikings in Arrowhead, it was really hot, uh, about 120 degrees on the turf. And Marty said, here's the plan. We're going to put Mike in for the first two series and then you're going in. I don't care how good or how bad Mike's playing. You're going in after the first two series. Then the next week played up Monday night in Denver. You know, that's not an easy pace to play. And, you know, that's always a very competitive game. And Chiefs have had a lot of success against the Denver Broncos up to that point. Uh, she said, listen, after the first series, you're going in. So uh, and then after that, you know, it's, I, they kind of eased me in mentally to play, which, you know, at, at the time I said, I could do this. Put me in. I'm ready. Let's go. But uh, Marty did a good job of easing me in so that, you know, that I was mentally ready to go by the time I got my hand on the football for that first snap. Marty Schottenheimer for maybe for the non-football fans, maybe not mean a lot, but for football fans like myself, it's an iconic name. Um, someone who coached some really, really good teams over the years. What was it like playing for him? Yeah, uh, Marty was an intense guy. Uh, Marty, remember, played in the NFL, played for the Buffalo Bills. Uh, was an overachiever, was not a great athlete, uh, was probably not a great football player, but really worked hard. Uh, he was a guy that, uh, you know, was always waiting to get cut. But anytime he was on the field, he did every little extra thing to be successful, to have any kind of chance to to win or any kind of chance to make a team. It wasn't easy for Marty. And that's the way he coached. Uh, he coached uh, with an attitude that, you know, we're going to outwork everybody. He coached with an attitude that there's no days off. He coached with an attitude that uh, when we're out of practice, you're out of practice. Sometimes two, three, two and a half, three and a half hours, uh, full pads. Uh, I mean, Marty Ball was his mantra. Marty Ball is something he coined, and that was tough physical football. That that one or two yard run in the first quarter would turn into a three or four yard run in the second quarter and the second half if you kept pounding. You kept you know, working hard, you kept uh, to the to the schemes and to to the plan. Those big those runs that were one and two would be eight and nine by the time he got to the fourth quarter. And that's the way he did it. Now, that was good and bad. It was good because, you know, we were ready to play. We were more physical. Nobody wanted to play against us. It was bad because at the end of the year, we were beat to hell. Right. So, uh, you know, we got to the playoffs and Marty's teams were, were um, uh, um known for not playing well in the playoffs. And I think, you know, after all the years of thinking back and, you know, being asked a question and, 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 and contemplating the reason why Marty's teams never had success in the playoffs is because his teams worked so hard to get to the playoffs that by the time you got there, you were just spent. And uh, yeah, we had some success, won some games, but those teams in the nineties, we won over a hundred games in the nineties. There should have been two or three Super Bowls in those, in those teams, but we just, didn't have any gas left in the tank by the time we got to those games. Yeah, and the, the discussion about how to play football uh, throughout the 90s is is one that maybe there's a book or someone has a book about just the actual – all the coaches and what they were thinking because by the time you get to the late 90s, um, you have the run and shoot early on in the 90s with Warren Moon and the Oilers. But as you get to the late 90s, you start to see the colleges 
are really spreading it out. Um, the undersized undermanned colleges are trying to figure out ways to compete because, you know, running it down their throat is obviously not working. Um, and so you kind of see the beginning of the 90s, you have more of this mentality. And then as you get closer to, to, to the 2000s, you start to see a kind of divergence. Of course, now we have um, all sorts of offenses. And so it's interesting to kind of hear that mentality because that was what he, what you're saying was the probably predominant view of a lot of coaches across America at that time. It's like, this is how you win football games. Um, and my, my thought always has been, it works well if you're the bigger, stronger team. It's quite easy to win football games that way. You know, if you're undermanned, you're going to have a, a long day at the office. And so I can see how that could take a toll over the course of a season to where, um, you know, the NFL, the margins are very razor thin, I'm, I'm assuming. And so uh, over the course of the year, you're probably really beat up, banged up. Talk about that, though, like going through season after season, game after game. What's it like on Monday or Tuesday after a game, Wednesday, yeah. Thursday? What's that process of recovery like? Yeah, great question. And, and you know, I just talked about this the other day on, on another podcast. And, and uh, um, you know, people ask me, well, what was the biggest challenge playing in the NFL? Um, you know, was it the size of the guys you're going against? Uh, you know, was it uh, playing in front of those huge crowds and hostile crowds on the road? And I said, no, I mean, th that's kind of every every time you, you play football, whether it's college or NFL. For me, and especially under Marty Schottenheimer's uh, football um, uh, teams, uh, it was what you just brought up. You know, we'd play hard on Sunday. Sometimes we'd run the ball 45, 50 times in a game. So <clears throat> you wake up on Monday morning, felt like you hit by a truck. And, you know, you barely get out of bed. And uh, you'd, uh, you know, you know, stroll over to the car as, as slowly as you can imagine. And you go in and you get treatment, you go in the ice tub, cold tub, you get ice and stem and you get all those stuff from the trainers. And then you go get a workout in, you start building up, you know, tearing up the lactic acid a little bit, you do a little bit of running, you watch film. Uh, you may have a little game plan uh, a meeting about the next week. Uh, but Monday was a long, uh, a sore day. And then Tuesday come around, everybody thinks, well, Tuesday, remember, from the NFL is a day off for everybody. So Tuesday, you think, well, that's got to be a great day because you're not doing anything. Well, it wasn't because, you know, about one or two o'clock in the afternoon, that lactic acid that you broke up and, and all those pains and injuries and bumps and bruises started to swell up. And Tuesday was miserable. It was always a day where you could barely even walk around the house. And then Wednesday, you know, you get in there, you get treatment and you start to work, you do a workout and you have a practice and you start to feel a little bit better and you probably get to about 50 or 60%. And then Thursday is another work day, but you probably get up to about 65, 70%. And then Friday, you know, it's kind of a walkthrough kind of a day. Uh, so, you know, you may get, if you're lucky to about 80% by Friday and then Saturday, you get ready to play a game and then you start the whole damn thing over again. So, you know, you, you, it's, it's like, uh, you know, you're building up the chips of health um, on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. You got that full that, that full uh, set of chips right in front of you, and you cash them all in on Sunday, and then you got to start building them up again. So uh, that was the hard thing about playing for Marty. Really, the hard thing about the NFL is, you know, you got to do that for 16 weeks. And, uh, you know, some weeks you get up to, you know, 80 85% by a game. You're never 100%. Anybody ever says they're 100% is either – uh, stupid or a liar. I, this never happens. Uh, or, you know, and then, you know, sometimes you only get up to about 50 or 60% and uh, you just got to play through it. That's part of the process. That's part of the, the calling of being an NFL football player, especially offensive line or defensive lineman. So that was always the hardest part is, you know, getting yourself in a position where you can go compete again on, on Sundays. Okay. So 1993, you're in the league three years, I think two, three years to that point. Um, and 
you have a roster there that's just crazy looking back in history, right? So you got Joe Montana, Marcus Allen. I mean, you have, of course, you mentioned uh, Marty. Um, and then you have uh, Neil Smith. I mean, you, Derek Thomas. I mean, the owners <laughs> of names. What was it like that year? Yeah, that was a great year. And then once again, that was another year that we really um, – we had an opportunity to win a Super Bowl, and and uh, you know one missed block on the cold turf in Buffalo kind of kind of screwed that up, and you know Joe got hit and his head hit the ground and got a concussion and he was out, and then uh, you know I think Dave Craig came in did a good job, but it just wasn't Joe Montana and we lost our leader. Uh, it was just one of those uh, things that kind of consistently happened uh, under Marty Schottenheimer where. You know, one year a guy missed a bunch of field goals from, you know, 30 yards out, uh, I think four or five field goals in 95. Then we had home field advantage in 97, you know, lost a game, a close game to Denver. We had home field advantage. So, uh, but playing with guys like Marcus Allen and Joe Montana, especially Joe Montana, listen, I grew up idolizing Joe Montana. I went, you know, I grew up Notre Dame fan and, uh, you know, I remember the chicken soup game and the cotton ball against Houston where he had 101 fever and had chicken soup at halftime. He came out and brought the team back and won the game in the last seconds with a throw uh, in the corner of the end zone. Uh, so, yeah, um, that was awesome. And, you know, I married uh, my my uh, my college sweetheart. Uh, we met our freshman year in college and, you know, she was a whole huge Notre Dame fan and she had Joe Montana's uh, uh, pitcher in her locker in high school. So when we, when we first met Joe Montana, I mean, she was just as starstruck as I was. And, you know, and we got to know each other and had a good time. We were very, very close, still are. Uh, but, um, uh, yeah, it was awesome. That, that was, those were the fun times. And, you know, we did radio shows. And, you know, once again, this book that I wrote, uh, View from the Center, it kind of talks about all those personalities in the 90s that you brought up. There are so many guys that people would be like, wow, that guy, you know, Rich Gannon, Joe Montana, Dan Selyamua. Uh, Marcus Allen, Derek Thomas, Neil Smith, uh, you know, Dave Zott, all kinds of guys that, that I played with that, uh, you know, really exemplified what uh, the Chiefs kingdom is all about. And, and what we did was, is we tried to bond and we tried to build relationships with the fans to build this foundation of the Chiefs kingdom that, that Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey stand on now and we're able to hold the Lombardi trophy up on this foundation that was kind of built by the guys who sweat blood and cried on the sidelines in the nineties. And, uh, you know, we feel ownership in that. And the fans really came about with us. They had a personal relationship with the players in the nineties. That's why when you talk to players and when you talk to fans now, they'll say Patrick Mahomes is the face of the Kansas city chiefs. But after that, you start to list off all these guys that played in the nineties. And if you think about that, that was 30 years ago, basically. Uh, so, um, you know, there's still, uh, the guys that people look at and look for and 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 revere here in Kansas City were those teams that played in the 90s. And that's why I wrote the book to kind of talk about the games and the guys and 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 what the plan was for Marty Schottenheimer and Carl Peterson at that time. What was it like writing the book? Because I'm sure it evokes all kinds of emotions going back and thinking ups and downs and injuries and bumps and bruises. What was that process like? Yeah, you know, it, it was a lot uh, more emotional than I thought it was going to be. Um you know, I've been doing radio here in Kansas City for 20 some years and and have told all these stories and and uh, um, have fun, you know, sharing experiences with with uh, with the fans and the people listening on the radio. But um, writing it down and getting it on paper and seeing it in print, uh, it became real again. And it was really therapeutic for me. Uh, and I think 
some of the guys that I sent it to uh, that read the book. So it was very therapeutic for them to kind of remember, you know, the good times and the bads and, you know, and, and, and the great uh, stories, you know, the Derek Thomas story who, you know, Derek was the heart and soul of our team and then passed away um, unexpectedly with a car accident, basically, and then passed away a couple months later, you know, the heart and soul of our team was gone. Um, talked about Gunther Cunningham, who was the head coach in the last two years. People don't really remember that Gunther was the head coach. And, you know, that Gunther Cunningham was one of the best men I've ever been around as far as just a, a, a great football guy, a great person, great defensive coordinator. But, you know, just couldn't, couldn't delegate. I mean, he just burned himself down to the bone as far as outworking everybody, but it just wasn't a positive thing for him. And that's one of the reasons why he wasn't head coach longer because he just, he just couldn't find a way to delegate and talking. He was up till three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning, setting up parking uh, uh, spots for the wives during the games. I mean, just crazy stuff like that. And, you know, uh, so, but those stories and those things were very therapeutic for me. They're very therapeutic. Uh, for the players that played and hopefully the fans they remember and it brings back memories there's a lot of people that uh, you know grew up when they were just little kids going out to the games in the 90s with their fathers or their mothers and maybe this can you know spark a memory or maybe it could uh, bring back uh, a positive uh, thought that happened for them while they were growing up watching the Chiefs in that era. So you've mentioned some things like you know the difference between Marty maybe and and Gunther just there but what is separating um, playing around all these players that you played against or with? What, what is it that separates the Joe Montanas of the world from an Elvis Gerbach who had a good career, but he's no Joe Montana? Well, I mean, I think talent is number first. I mean, just some people are just more talented than other people. You know, it's as simple as that. Uh, and then I think opportunity. Um, you know, some people get opportunities to play. I mean, Joe Montana was an unbelievable football player. I mean, he was very talented and very, very smart, but he also had Jerry Rice. Uh, he also had Dwight Clark. He also had, you know, uh, uh, I'm drawing a blank on the running back, but back then, but I mean, he had, uh, he Craig. had, yeah, uh, Craig. Yeah. Um, Roger Craig. Uh, I mean, he had unbelievable players around him too. Um, so, uh, you know, they just, is in the right place at the right time. And, and, uh, and had a lot of success. Uh, but, you know, I, I just, I think what separates a lot of uh, people uh, in the NFL, especially the quarterback position, is just mental fortitude. Um, you know, it, it's like that, you know, you always got, hey, listen, go to the next play, that old adage. Well, it's never more important than at the quarterback position because there's times when you're going to miss a read or you're going to throw an interception. And if you sit there and you pout about it, you worry about it and you threat about it or you try to blame other people, you try to look for reasons why it's not your fault, then the next thing you know, you're making that mistake again and again and again. And, uh, you know, that's what gets you benched and that gets you out of the league. And I think a lot of times people mentally have got to, uh, you know, put a, put aside some of the uh, issues that they have on the field or off the field and uh, and just grind it out and, and try to be the best they possibly could be. But they've got to get past a lot of those issues that they're having. What's the one moment in your career you wish you could relive? Um, that's a great question. I don't think I've ever been asked that. Um, you know, it, it, it's not a game. Um, so I mentioned Mike Webster, uh, you know, Mike was my mentor. Uh, and there's a story in the book and, uh, and I'll, it's really long, but I'll just kind of paraphrase it 
as much as I can. You know, basically, I was having a horrible game against Denver Broncos my rookie year. I just came off. My father passed away a couple of games before. Uh, I had surgery on my thumb, so I had a big cast on. And, you know, just just wasn't having a good game. And uh, Marty pulled me out and put Mike in. And it's right before half. And we go, and I'm sitting out, I'm pouting. I'm like, that's it. You know, I'm going to get cut. Just lost my dad. I got this big thing on my hand. You know, I don't know anybody in Kansas City. I did think I, I think I just bought a house. And, you know, I'm what a big waste of money. I really and truly thought that's it. I'm getting cut. I mean, uh, you know, and, and mentally, uh, I was checked out. I was pouting, feeling sorry for myself, doing all the things that I knew was not the way to handle it. But, I, but as a human being, I was doing it. So at halftime, I go to sit down, and Mike uh, starts taking his shoes off, cuts his tape off. And, uh, you know, I thought, yeah, he's just getting retaped or spattered or something. Takes his shoulder pads off, and he, Marty comes over and goes, what are you doing, Mike? He goes, I'm not going in anymore. That's your center. Put him in. That's your guy. And at that point, I'm like, you know, it was like Rocky during Rocky II when Adrian says, all I want you to do is win, Rocky, mm -hmm. win. And he just jumped up, said, what are we waiting for? And it saved my career. I went out and had a nice half of football in the second half, a completely different thing. And, you know, I've. You know, I could, if it was anybody else, I may have pouted, felt sorry for myself, started to, you know, uh, question myself, question, you know, why I'm playing in the NFL and um, may have been cut, may have not had 11 years and been a, a ring of fame honor in Kansas City and Hall of Fame and all because of that one situation. So, you know, those those are the little things that happen in a career. So um, that reminded me and that was an important fact in my life that. You know, it wasn't really particularly a game win or anything else. It was just a situation that presented itself that I was saved by a guy who cared more about his teammates than himself. Wow, that's a that's a great story. Like that's a really, a really good story. Um, and, and 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 real quick, so then then you asked, well, what would you change? I I would have tried to be there for Mike. We didn't know. Mm. We didn't know that Mike was in the situation he was in. We didn't know that he was homeless. We didn't know that he was living out of his car in, in Pittsburgh. We didn't know he had all these pain issues and mental issues. And if we would have known and, and if we would have had an opportunity to help him, I wish if I can go back in, in the time machine and, you know, be there for him like mm. he was there for me, that that's the one thing that I regret is I didn't know and I wasn't there. And he was there when I was at my bottom and I wasn't there for him. Mm, yeah, it's a it was a tragic, um, tragic passing there on that one. Right. And so um, a couple more things here before that let you go. Um, you've gone through the book process. You've relived these stories. You're out obviously talking about it. Um, one of the things that's hard for, for humans in general is to romanticize overly or extremely downplay the past um, because there's a sense in which we either long for what we've had before or we kind of don't want to go back to that. Um, part of the sports experience, team sports experience, is the camaraderie that you get in the locker room. Um, and so thinking back at, through this process, um, A, how did you deal when you retired losing the camaraderie? Uh, and then B, maybe for people who haven't ever experienced what that's like on a team, uh, the friendships, the bonds, the trust, um, willing to put your body, as you said, in front of someone to get ran over and no one's going to notice. Um, how do we as a society, um, friendships, bonds, try to in, uh, develop that outside of something like a team sport? Yeah, so um, when, when, you, when it's taken away from you, I mean, um, 
I, I think there are some people that retire uh, on their own volition that, you know, they're ready to go. But I think most people think maybe they could squeeze another year or two out and it's, and uh, you know, it's just not to be, uh, that's the way I was, you know, I, it was 11 years. My knees just weren't working correctly and I knew it was time to get out. I would wish I could have played more, but just wasn't there. And, and uh, people always said, well, you know, what did you miss most? Yeah. You miss camaraderie. You do miss camaraderie, but you know, the adrenaline rush, uh, playing on a weekend on a Thursday night game like the Chiefs will play this week or a Monday night game or a Sunday game that adrenaline rush of running on the field is a drug all right it is a drug it's just like any other thing it burns in your brain and you look for that fix you look for that that uh, that feeling again and again and again and I think a lot of times guys that retire uh, they look for that feeling in other things whether it's drugs or alcohol or whatever um, you know to try to to find it again and we all know if you've ever had drug issues or alcohol issues that you know you can never get back to that that uh that first time deal so um yeah that's that's what you know and and it wasn't an easy transition for me um you know i did some stupid things and and was involved doing things that i probably shouldn't have been doing um and what saved me uh to be brutally honest with you is going and coaching high school football uh, getting back uh, on the field uh, to uh, maybe recapturing some of that adrenaline uh, rush, uh, walking on a field on a Friday night, uh, coaching kids, being responsible to kids, um, you know, giving kids that opportunity that Mike gave me uh, to have a career. Um, you know, uh, you know, a lot of these kids, you know, I always tell kids, there's a football program out there for you. It may not be Notre Dame or, or USC or, or, uh, you know, Alabama, but there's a football program out there for you. So if you want to play, you can play. So giving them the vehicle to use football uh, as a, uh, an opportunity to, to go on to college. And then, you know what, guess what? You know, we all have, you know, situations that happen in a football game that happen to us in life. You know, we all have fourth down situations in life that we got to convert, whether it's with family or whether it's with friends, whether it's with jobs. You know, we, we have to convert. We got to find a way to, to move the sticks. And uh, you learn that lesson in football. So um, for me, you know, football saved me again, uh, gave me an opportunity to uh, be responsible, gave me an opportunity to to run on that field and feel that adrenaline rush again. And, and I tell people all the time, they say, well, you know, why do you coach high school football? It takes up a lot of time. You can be out golfing. You could be doing color commentating on the weekend. You could be doing all kinds of different stuff that are probably a little bit easier and probably not as much time. Uh, but, but I, I, I tell people it's just for me, you know, it saved me. It gave me an opportunity to, to, uh, to have that, that feeling of camaraderie of teamwork. And, you know, and I tell people, listen, you know, I, I played on Fridays, I played on Saturdays, I played on Sundays and I played on Mondays and some Thursdays. If I had to play one more game, it'd be a Friday night football game with my high school buddies. Because they play for the right reason. They play for the love of the game. You probably, you know, you remember, you played, you, you, you know, we were just happy to go to the A&W root beer after and go find and get a hot dog and a, and a, and a, 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 a root beer float. I mean, that's what we did. I mean, you know, that we played for, not for the money, not for the accolades, not for, you know, we played maybe because a cute girl would look at you or you went and you, you had some fun with your buddies after the game. That was it. And, you know, so I would always say, hey, listen, yeah, I ran out in that field against in Michigan from 100,000 people, you know, ran on the field at Arrowhead, I ran on the field at Oakland where they wanted to kill us. But running on a field on a Friday night was, to me, a great experience. And it saved me 
Uh, it saved me. It saved my life, saved my marriage, saved my family. And it's been great for me. And that's why I do it. Yeah, it's funny when you talk when you talk about the adrenal, adrenaline rush, obviously high school football, but we were the Chiefs. And so we had the, the Tomahawk Chalk song, uh, song and the band playing and the crowd, little crowd going crazy and that adrenaline rush, but also being in big stadiums for big games, uh, not playing, but just witnessing there. There's just an energy and a vibe. And so um, yeah, obviously for me, with an with an, with a irrelevant career, <laughs> it, it wasn't long enough to, to, to think about it like that. But as you mentioned, it just brings back all these thoughts and um, you know, the various games I've been at and it's just feeling the charge. And I can't imagine what it's like um, on the field perspective because – you know, uh, in, in the stands, you're, you're amped up and you have nothing to do with what happens. You're just simply sitting there watching. To your point about high school football, um, yeah, I think that there's something, you know, high school football is is unique in a lot of ways um, because you have, from a coaching perspective, I think it's probably um, maybe a little bit controversial here, but probably some of the hardest coaching you have to do because the greatest disparity of talent is usually on display on Friday nights. You might have – if you have one Division One A athlete on the field um, and no one else is, then that player is substantially better than everyone else. And so trying to figure out how to work around that or avoid that is is very problematic. And so um, the coaching and how they have to coach and think about things and the players and, um, you know, giving your body up for literally nothing. You're not getting paid. You know, so it's it's a, it's a fundamental – it's a fundamentally different experience, but there is a purity to it that, that I think that you're tapping into there that, that I would – um, wholeheartedly agree with. And so, um, yeah, I, I, it, it's glad to, that you've gotten back into that. And that's cool. So, okay, I'm going to let you go with a couple questions here. I'm going to fire off uh, a few names. We'll get your perspective on them. Uh, you played against them, played with them. Um, uh, mainly, I think these are all people you played against or should have played against. They were in your era for sure. Obviously, first, let's we'll start with John Elway. Give me, uh, I'm going to say the name. First thing comes to mind, John Elway. Great, great guy. Uh, met him a couple times, just really, really open, really, really uh, uh, genuine, a winner. Um, the guy competed, he won, and uh, he was, you know, you never had him down because I can't tell you how many times in the fourth quarter with a couple minutes left, he came back and beat us. I mean, just a winner, competitor. Okay. Charles Haley. Charles Haley. Uh, tenacious. Uh, uh, just, uh, you know, one of those guys that you hated to play against because he was very, very athletic, very talented, but he went 110%. You know, that's a bad combination for an offensive lineman. Uh, so a tenacious guy, you know, sometimes you go against guys that are really, really talented, but don't give 100%. Sometimes you go against guys that give 100% that are not very talented. The rare 100% and talented is Charles Haley. All right. John Randall. Oh, <laughs> Man, I can't tell you how many times him and I went at it, uh, especially because we had training camp basically together for every year for like eight years in the cheese league, uh, where the Vikings and the Chiefs would go against each other, whether it was we went up to their place or our place. And uh, yeah, uh, we never really got along very well. Uh, and I don't know if we'd get along now. Uh, if I saw him uh, at a restaurant or a bar, I'd probably go the other way. Uh, but uh, but just a really, really good football player and about as explosive as anybody you've ever seen. All right. Reggie White. Reggie White. Gosh. So uh, I, I, I was up and close and personal with Reggie. Uh, you know, we're preparing to play against the Eagles uh, back when he was with them. And, uh, you know, the whole week, you know, he's lined up over the left tackle and uh you know we, we watched the film everything else and then every third down situation he decided to come in and line up at the nose tackle and we we're our protection was fanning out 
the guard and the tackle. And I was one-on-one -on -one with the nose tackle, who's supposed to be just another guy. I think it was Mike Golick, our old buddy, Mike. Right. So I wasn't too worried about Mike uh, in his pass rush prowess, but Reggie White, uh, you know, in the shotgun in the middle of the pocket with no help. That's not a fun situation at all. Just an unbelievable football player. I've never played against a guy who can get to a second move as smooth and as fast as he could. Yeah. And, that, you know, everybody's got a great first move, mm -hmm. but the great, great ones have an unbelievable second move. And that's what he had. OK, I'm going to pull a name out here. And this is this is a little bit of a curveball, so I'm going to warn you, Leonard Griffin. Oh, root doctor. <laughs> so I know, I know. So Coach Griff wouldn't know me. Um, I coached. Um, he's from the same area I'm from originally, Louisiana, and we coached one year together on the on the uh, on the same team. And so he was uh, the defensive line coach or something. So that's how I know him. But he wouldn't remember me from Adam. But um, of course, he was the NFL player. So we all we all were asking him questions and stuff. So. Yeah, Root Doctor. Uh, you know, we called him Root Doctor because uh, Bue's down from Louisiana area, right? And uh, he would get these packages from I don't know who, maybe some kind of witch doctor or something down there. And he'd have all these potions and all this stuff. He'd be crushing stuff up and rubbing it on his legs or, and <laughs> ingesting these roots and and uh, spices and everything else. Uh, and his Louisiana accent, uh, you know, he... <laughs> uh, so we, we thought he was some kind of... You know, he was... Uh, he was Joe Boo uh, in Major League uh, before uh, before that was cool. Yeah, so he he was into all that kind of uh, alternative medicine stuff, and I guess he was onto something because that's all they sell now with hemp and everything <laughs> else with pain. So uh, yeah, he he was he was an interesting guy. In yeah, year. he it was fun coaching with him that one year. Um, <laughs> so so he went to Grambling, which was about. 35 minutes from, from where we were lived and where we're coaching at. Uh, yeah. And then Willie Rofe went to Louisiana tech, which is you know, right next to Grambling. And so I was asking him about, you know, what it was like going against Willie, if you ever went against Willie at the time. And so um, he obviously Willie came to the chiefs, uh, I think right after you left. Is that right? right? Yep. Yeah. Okay. He came out me, yeah. All right. So what is the one person you wish you could have faced that you didn't get to? Or who is the one person? I guess you know, I think Aaron Donald. Uh, I would have really liked to have gone against Aaron Donald. Uh, you know, he reminds me a little bit of Warren Sapp. Uh, he's kind of the Warren Sapp of this generation. Um, Aaron, yeah, he's, I, I just, you know, I, I like to go against the best. And I had the opportunity to go against Howie Long and, and Warren Sapp and Cortez Kennedy and, uh, and uh, Jerry Ball and all kinds of really good football players. Uh, but, you know, when you watch Aaron Donald out there, and I like his intensity uh you know i would like to have seen how my game translate to his um i think we're i i would have had a little bit probably a little bit more so i always felt like i was better against guys that were were quicker because i was quicker it's just those big guys that would just maul me mm. and he's not one of those guys you know going against guys like ted washington who were six six foot nine 340 pounds i mean those are the guys that uh, you know those the, you know they pick you up and carry you around like you're a little kid so uh, but yeah, Aaron Donald would probably be a guy that I'd love to have gone against. Did you go against, uh, Gilbert Brown? Yes, I did. Yeah. Gil <laughs> you said Gilbert. big guy. That's the first guy I thought of. <laughs> yeah. Gilbert with Green Bay. I did go against him. Now he's a KU guy. So I knew him when he was at Kansas. Mm. Uh, uh, so, and then, you know, uh, Stubblefield was on that line and Kansas went against him there. So they had a pretty good line, but yeah. Gil yeah. Big, big Gilbert was, uh, uh, really just a handful of load in the middle. 
But, you know, what you kind of got out of him, he was one of those guys that uh, if you got him, it, he would just kind of shut her down because he didn't, was going to waste any energy. But if you didn't get him and he got in that gap, it was very, very difficult to stop. Yeah. Okay. The, as we said in the introduction, uh, the book is called The View from the Center, My Football Life and the Rebirth of the Chiefs Kingdom. It drops September 20th is what it says right mm-hmm. here on Amazon. Uh, where do you want us to send people to, to buy the book, to Amazon, anywhere else, website? What do you just want to push people to? Yeah, yeah. So uh, if you go to my website at Tim Grunhard, which is spelled G-R-U-N-H-A-R-D, timgrunhard.com, uh, and you buy it there, you'll get an autographed copy. Awesome. Uh, so I sign every book that's ordered on that website. Uh, the rest of you can get them anywhere from from uh, Barnes and Nobles to Amazon to Walmart to, uh, you know, all the thrift thrift bookstore, all, every bookstore you can imagine online, you can get it at. But if you want an autographed copy, go to timgrunhart.com, uh, order it there. It's like 30 bucks and you get an autographed copy. So, but, uh, you know, I hope, you know, whether you're a Chiefs fan or not, uh, I talk about the trials and tribulations of growing up with a, you know, a, a father who was very demanding, uh, a great father, but a demanding father, Chicago policeman, violent crime detective, uh, who uh, basically pushed us and, and, and challenged us to be great at all times and everything we did and we didn't live up to it that all the time and talk a little bit about that and then talk about my uh, recruiting process at Notre Dame or talk about being a rookie at the NFL talk about you know all the great players all the great games and and uh, so it's a fun book uh, whether you're a Chiefs fan or not uh, it's a story about you know like this kind of starts out I, I, I was born hungry uh, and kind of stayed that way and and uh, it talks a little bit about that so yeah well yeah, and for people my age I'm 37 it's kind of a, the perfect, um, as I was excited to, to get you on, because it's kind of the perfect thing of, you know, I can remember Joe Montana playing um, a little bit, but to say that I remember his career would be not true. I just remember a little bit because, you know, I was born in 85, so um, I can remember kind of some of those stuff. So you can kind of get the, 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 when you become a football fan, your books, your career starts right at that time. I was in kindergarten, roughly somewhere there. And so, um, you know, reading through this period of time is quite fascinating because by the time your career is over, I'm, I'm in high school. And so it's kind of a, an era of, for my age, uh, people, my age it's, it's a good to kind of go back and revisit some of those things because uh, we don't have obviously full memories of that period of, of, of football. And there's a lot of great stories to be told. So um, look forward to read the book and thanks for coming on the show today. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And uh, you know, anytime you need something, let me know. Okay. There it is. Tim Brunhard. Be sure to check out his book and be sure to check out warroommedia.com where I have the podcasts and other things going on. I'd love to see you there. Talk tomorrow.